picture with me a young child, maybe your own child, coming home from a day at the amusement park. The child is smiling and full of joy, and you as parents are so glad to have made a beautiful memory. But then when you tell your kid to get ready for bed, things start to go south. The child starts to pout and complain, I want ice cream and I want to watch TV. And when you as parents explain that you've had a big day and that there's been enough treats and it's late, your child huffs out these words, I don't believe you love me. You never loved me. You don't care about me. I hate you. Children can be fickle creatures. I know. I was one. And I know that the smallest things can change their perspective from joyful laughs in a wholehearted love to temper tantrums in inconsolable misery. We're nothing like that, right? If you'll turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Malachi, we may be more like that image than we'd like to think. Malachi is the last book in our English Bibles, and he was the last prophet to speak before the New Testament. So I'll bring up a little bit more of that context later, but first I'd like to pray, and then we'll read the first five verses as we consider what God has to say to us through this text today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, who designed our days before they had even had been uh, made, before we've taken our first breath, we come here now to hear from your word And the words of Malachi are heavy, but we know that your holy scripture is worthy of reading and dwelling upon. So we ask this morning that you would convict us of our sins and that we would not use this sermon to look at others, but that we would reflect on ourselves, that we would reflect on you, and that we would respond appropriately to the words of Malachi. Please show us our sins and show us your bountiful love and create clean hearts in us so that we may desire to do everything that you've commanded us to do, so that we would set our heads and our hearts and our hands into action and to glorify you rightly. Bless the people here at Calvary Baptist Church and renew our hearts and our minds so that we may have our eyes, our hearts, and our minds fixed on you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So hear the opening words of Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the deserts. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. They will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel." The Israelites had a similar response to this discontented child. When God tells them that he loves him, their immediate response is to question him. How have you loved us? They don't see all the good things that God has done in their lives. It's so much like us. 
When we go through hard times in life, we find ourselves asking the exact questions the Israelites are asking. God, have you loved me? Why am I dealing with this? Didn't you say you love me? I, I don't feel like that right now. Everyone tells me that, that I should believe this, but I don't know if I really do. When I first read God's response, it seemed strange. I mean, it, it says, I have loved you, and his response is, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. But, but it's something that's interesting, and so we learn here that God's justice is given to the wicked. The judgment that God may give may seem strange to us, but it's part of his perfect plan. God's justice is given to the wicked. Look at verses 2 and 3, starting partway through verse 2 again. It says, Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I, laid waste, I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. What kind of comfort is that? I love Jacob, but not Esau. I destroyed the land of Esau's descendants, the Edomites. What kind of comfort is that? Well, it's a lot, actually. Edom has a history with Israel. Genesis 25 verse 30 shows us that the beginning of the Edomites comes from Esau. Jacob and Esau were twins who fought over the birthright of the firstborn, and Jacob tricks Esau into giving his birthright away. Because of this, Jacob inherits what Esau should have. Esau is left with a small bit of land instead and a whole lot of anger. And in Numbers 20, we see that Moses sends a message to Edom, Moses, part of the Israelites, to Edom, asking for safe passage through their country as they were fleeing from Egypt. However, Edom refuses and tells them that if they even step foot into their country, they would set their swords against them. Israel eventually will do that, but since God has blessed Esau with his land. The Edomites don't want to give up their land to Israel. They had already been tricked once. They're not losing their land again. But eventually, when Israel is able to go through in Deuteronomy chapter 2, God tells the Israelites that they must not try to conquer Edom because he gave it to Esau as a possession, and they would not win that land if they tried the next time we see the Edomites is when Saul is at war with them in 1 Samuel, King Saul. Um, and then we see David, after he takes over the kingdom, goes to war with them again in 2 Samuel. And then in 2 Kings, we see that Edom led a revolt against Judah under Jeraham, and they set up their own king. And then in Ezekiel 5, during the time that the Israelites were taken into Babylonian captivity, we read that the Edomites go and they plunder and raid everything they could from the ruins of Israel. And we see that this final action is what led God to pronouncing judgment against them. Jeremiah 49 and the book of Obadiah explain the wickedness and the pride and the violence and the apathy that Edom has towards Israel when they are put into captivity. And we see that in Jeremiah 49, verse 17, Edom would become a horror 
Everyone who passed by it will be horrified and will hiss because of the disasters. This prophecy then becomes a reality with total destruction of the Edomites when they are no longer a threat to Israel. So back to the question, what kind of comfort is this to us? How should this give Israel hope? And how does this give us hope? It gives Israel hope because they see that God cares for them. In response to the wicked deeds that are done against Israel, and Edom does very wicked deeds towards Israel, Edom falls and justice is served. Though we aren't a church that would agree with the the man that I'm going to quote here, this American political activist, uh, this man Cornel West, says of justice, never forget that justice is what love looks like in public. And I'm sure that West was not talking about the book of Malachi, but I think it fits the book of Malachi perfectly. God's justice is given to the wicked as a public display of God's love for Israel. No longer do the Israelites have to fear the Edomites, and no longer do they have enemies who plot their destruction. They no longer have to endure the war against Edom, and no longer do they have a nation set against them. Their enemy has fallen, and the wicked people have been dealt with righteously. Our younger generation, our high school students, our college students, our university students think about the concept of justice a lot. It's easy to pit generations against generations, but we see that young people today desperately desire justice. They want love and justice. They may not, and we may not always understand the best way to love or the best way to seek justice, but they know that they're virtues. They know that things aren't right, and they want things to be set right. They want to be loved without shame, and they want to know that someone loves them for who they are. They crave being known. Their desire for justice and our desire for justice shows that we know things aren't right, and we need wrongs righted. One of my favorite video games is a story that at its core is about racism and the dynamics of two worlds that that don't work together, and they try to find a balance When one succeeds, the other necessarily suffers. And and so as you go along, you play as a character who joins his best friend as she uh, has chosen to help and fix their world, to, to make their world the success again. But before you leave, your main character goes and visits his dad, a dwarf, and he has some sayings that his son often has to listen to. And the one that he quotes the most, the one that every character knows so well that they quote it to him as well, is Dwarven Vow number seven. Justice and love will always win. And he's right. Justice and love will always win. Not always our sense of justice and not always our understanding of love, but we serve a God who is justice and a God who is love. So how has God loved us, brothers and sisters? We know that God loves us because he gives justice to the wicked. We may not always see, but God is faithful to his people. And if you're going through a hard time, if you've had something unjust that has happened to you, if you have been hurt, if you've been abused, 
if you've been mistreated or abandoned, if you've been wrongfully accused, whatever injustice has happened to you, know that God has not forgotten you. He knows you and he is still faithful. Know that he is the God of perfect judgment and that he will decree things right. It's a delightful decree. He does not forget and he doesn't forget you. He doesn't forget the wrongs done against you and he does not forget his promises. Though he does not promise to give you everything you want, and that will sometimes mean that, we don't, mean that we don't see the justice in the way that we expect. We know that God's justice is given to the wicked. And we also know that God is a perfect judge. What injustices are you seeing in your life? At work or at church or here in our community or in Canada? We know that our God is the God of justice and there is a fight uh, for justice. And we're told to fight for those in needs, need. So what kind of actions are you taking? Will you prayerfully consider asking God to use you to stand up against injustice? Will you cry out to the Lord and ask that justice be done now? There will be nothing that is hidden from him and all justice will be perfectly declared. And that's the kind of hope that we have, a world made right if you're a Christian, then you have both this present hope and you have a future hope. Here on earth, we know that the judge of all the earth will do right exactly as we see in Genesis 18, verse 25. Your future hope will be that things will be restored. You'll never again be the victim when the dead are raised and on the day of judgment we will stand and everyone will be accused of their wickedness. So how has God loved you, dear Christians? He has declared his love in telling us of the total destruction of the evils that surround us. Satan will be destroyed. For example, Revelation 20 verse 10 tells us the devil who has deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophets were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. You're free. Death will be defeated. In Revelation 20, verse 14, it says, Then death and Haiti were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if that's not enough for you, brothers and sisters, we also see that sin will be no more. In Revelation 21, verses 4 and 5, it says that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write these down, for the words are trustworthy and true. Do you need any more comfort than that? What enemy could possibly stand in the way of our God, the God of perfect justice? His power is dangerous, but it is delightful. He is good and will not let evil prevail. He's able to pronounce perfect justice and follow through. He is the faithful one who has done everything that he has promised. What greater assurance can there be? 
This may and should bring us hope, but what about when we think about our own wrongdoings? Justice for all means that we will be held accountable for our guilt, and we all have, sadly, sinned. We all know that we've committed wrongdoings against one another, and we've committed sins against God. So what kind of hope is that? Our desire for Justin often fades when we realize that we're the problems. And if God's justice is given to the wicked, then I could see many of us having fears, but we see that there's another element here at play in this text, and it's the second point that we have for today. God's mercy is given to the wicked. And this may be just as, if not more, difficult for us to accept, because justice means things will be righted, but mercy, that's an act of undeserved undeserved kindness towards the guilty. But even still, God's mercy is given to the wicked. Look with me again at the beginning of our passage in in verse 2. Malachi 1-2 says, I have loved you. To get a sense of how merciful this is, I want you to also have a brief history of Israel. Returning back to Jacob and Esau, we see that Jacob is the father of the Israelites, Jacob was the second-born twin who tricked his brother into giving him the right of the firstborn. Where Israel begins, or where, where, where Esau and Edom begins in anger, Israel and Jacob begins in deception. But Jacob, after he deceives his brother, he runs away and he gets married to multiple women, possibly because that he was too drunk to realize that the first wife that he married was not the woman that he wanted, but having multiple wives, let alone one that you don't even want, is never good, and we always see that in Scripture. Marriage is meant to be for one man and one woman for a reason. And when Esau finds Jacob, Jacob puts the wife that he doesn't love as much, his wife Leah, closer to Esau's forces in case Esau attacks. Jacob's name is then changed to Israel, and we see that the nation of Israel is born here, and he has a handful of children, and his children start to hate one of their brothers, his brother, their brother Joseph, because that Israel loves him more than everyone else. And they consider letting their brother die, but then instead they decide that they're going to, you know, be nice and sell him into slavery. It's hard to believe that these guys are the good guys. They're not. They don't deserve any kind of kindness. And then the nation becomes captives in Egypt, and then God delivers them, and then they spend years wandering and fighting with God in the wilderness, and God promises to give them a good land, and he provides them food, and then they continue to be disobedient and disobey again and again and again, and they run into problems, and then they tell God that they need help, and God helps them. And then they rebel, and the cycle repeats. And if you want to see some of the wickedness for yourself, you can read about those in the book of Judges. But time after time, they fight against God, and they break his law, and they disrespect him. But whenever they ask for help, he gives it to them. For some reason, for some reason that we're not given, we see that God chooses to love Jacob and Israel, even though they don't deserve his love nor do they deserve his mercy. 
and yet God's mercy is given to the wicked. Romans 9, will expand on this a little bit. We see that in Romans 9, verses 9 through 12, it says, for this reason, or for this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our, father, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. And as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And we see here in Malachi 1, that's where that's from. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Our passage today is to show that God's election is determined because of who God is. It's not because of who Jacob was. It's not because of who Esau was. It's not because of who you are. It's because of who God is. And the scandalous message in this passage is not that God hated Esau, but that he loved Jacob. Why did he love Jacob? God chose Israel, but when the Lord Jesus came, he made a new standard. He made a new covenant a covenant that's not made with flesh and blood, a covenant that was made for anyone. He promised that when Jesus died on the cross, was buried, and was raised again to new life, you can be united with Christ. When Jesus died, he died the death of the wicked, and he declared that everyone who calls on the name of Jesus, who died in their place, would be saved. He died a criminal's death. He died... For you. He died so that you may be set free. And if you're not a Christian, then please consider these two points that we've just had. God's justice will be given, and if you're trusting that you've done more good things than bad things, and that you've tipped the scales in your favor, you're not free from the punishment that God has promised he would deliver, because perfect justice will reign. You're not perfect, and God demands perfect justice. But, but as I said, you're not perfect. Nobody is. Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord, and he will not hold back from making all things right. But there is good news, and that is my second point, that God's mercy is given to the wicked. God's mercy is given to us. You're not asked to sign up for community service. You're not expected to earn favor with one another. You're not forced to give your money away. You're not required to do good. All these things are good things, but you can't do these on your own. Christ is the one who saves you. God is the one who saves you. And if you're hoping to receive mercy from God, I promise you this. If you believe in Jesus, and you believe that he is who he says he is, and that he died in your place, you will receive that mercy. You will be given the Holy Spirit and he will point you to Christ and transform you and lead you into these good works that, that you once could not do. Did you hear that, Christian brothers and sisters? The promise that I just made is your current reality. Justice will still be done, but you will not be held accountable you will not be the recipient of God's wrath. Jesus took that wrath for you already. Instead, you have received mercy. He chose you as his child and has adopted you, and he loves you. And that's how we love Jacob. That's how we loved Israel. 
And that's how he loves us today. And that's why in Malachi 1, at the beginning, we see, I have loved you, says the Lord. But of course, Israel does not believe God, and they demanded that he prove it. They demanded that even after he delivered them from captivity twice, protected them when they rebelled, rebelled, protected them when they rebuilt the walls, protected them when they built the temples, and he blessed them as they were able to reinstitute the worship and their culture back to the way it was before, and as he has destroyed their enemies, ensuring that their enemies would never return. We demand a lot out of God sometimes, even though he continually shows his love, his love in sending Christ. We're just like the Israelites. We are short-sighted and we see the bad in our lives without acknowledging the, the plethora of goods that God has given us. But that's not how we should treat God, and that brings us to the remainder of this chapter. And in it, we'll see the third point. We'll see that God's judgment deserves honor and respect. And whether he has decreed justice or he has decreed mercy, he is making the right decision. He will never make the wrong call. He is the perfect judge. God's judgment deserves honor and respect. So join me in reading the rest of the chapter, starting at verse 6. It says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor to God that he may be gracious with us with such a gift from your hands. Will he show favor to any of you? Says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there would be one among you who would shut the door that you may not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. And I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to the setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snorted it, says the Lord of hosts. You, have bring, you, have brought, you bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering? Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations." That's pretty condemning stuff. The Israelites have shown no regard, no respect, no honor to God. For being their constant provider, 
they are effectively spitting in God's face. God has provided for them like a father has provided for a child. He's given them food like manna that fell from heaven. And he's given them a land that flows with milk and honey. He's protected them in times of war. He sustained them in captivity and delivered them from captivity. He is as a father and he lets them experience the consequences of their actions. And yet he continues to help them in their time of need over and over and over but they don't pay him any honor. And as a master, the one who has dominion over them, they don't even treat him like that. When they were slaves in Egypt, slaves to Pharaoh, they did what Pharaoh asked of them. They treated Pharaoh with more respect than they treated God. They feared Pharaoh, but they don't fear God. They don't fear the Lord. They give God the good things that they, or they they give the things to God that they don't want, and they keep the good things and claim them for themselves, and then they claim that they're serving him. They give God polluted food, as it said in verse 7. It would be like knowingly giving gluten to a celiac or allergens to those who you know can't tolerate it. Everyone knows that that's unacceptable. It's wicked. But the Israelites know that God has forbidden these things, and they don't care. They do it anyway. In fact, even the priests are like this. God says, oh, priests who despise my name. In verse 6, and this isn't a simple case of misunderstanding or ignorance. The priests should know this. This is rebellion at its core. There is no fear, no honor among Israelites here in the book of Malachi. It's the continual story of Israel. God gives and then they take, and then they forget, and then they rebel, and then they suffer, and then they cry out, and God gives again. That is the kindness of a father, the kindness that never runs out when they really don't deserve it. But they're not unique. We're like this often, too. I know there's been many times that I could have and should have honored God, and instead I decided to honor myself And I know that pastors Matt and Kenny could tell that to you of themselves too, as could our elders. The priests of Israel were the spiritual leaders of old, but the leaders of our church sometimes can fall into this same trap. And there are churches today that claim to serve God, but they do anything but honor him and his name. They do everything that he hates, in fact. And some of you here are helpers and leaders that are in the church, some who have taught Sunday school, um, some who watch children in the nursery or lead small groups or care for the building. And there's others who may not be volunteering right now. But remember that through Christ, all of us are priests. We are the priesthood of all believers. And we're all prone to fall into apathy or hypocrisy. So I'll ask this to everyone here. Do you honor God? Do you respect God? Do you respect his commandments? God's judgment deserves honor and respect. So take a good time, take a good amount of time to think about this today. Whether you take comfort in God's mercy that's given to you or you contemplate God's justice, how do you treat God? Verse 10 should help you reflect 
on this also. Oh, that, were, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Here, God is saying that he would rather the people give him nothing than the dishonorable things that they claim to do in service to God. It's better for them to give nothing. That's what the other nations are doing. They're giving him nothing. Yet it was worse for Israel to know who God was, to know who God is, and to do what they were doing than for the other nations that paid no attention to them. God makes this promise in verse 11, for from the rising of the sun to the setting of my name, my name will be great, sorry, from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. And then in verse 12, it says, you, but you profane it when you say the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit that is its food, may be despised. They were told to take their sacrifice seriously. Just like what we're supposed to do when we take the Lord's Supper seriously. When we, brothers and sisters, take the Lord's Supper together each week, how do you take it? Do you reflect on Christ's body broken for you? Do you consider the new covenant that's made in Christ's blood Do you look around and see your brothers and sisters who are united in Christ with you? As I said, I don't do this perfectly to my shame. I've taken the supper without considering these things perfectly before. So keep me accountable to this. Keep one another accountable to this. That's one of the reasons we get to look at one another and take the supper in communion with one another. It's a celebration. It's the best news ever. But it's not something that we should take lightly either. Don't let your brothers or your sisters be haphazard with this. Don't let the people who are not Christians be haphazard with this. And hold them to the same standard. Remember that in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 29 and 30, which Bruno did not read, but I think did a good job of pointing at, right after our communion text, when Paul is giving instruction for how to take the supper, he says that those who take it without the body or without discerning the body, are guilty of the blood of the Lord. And some have died because of that. Now, Christ's death was the perfect and final sacrifice for our sins. So when we profess Christ as, Christ as our Savior and follow him with our actions and our obedience, we honor his sacrifice. And it's in that that we are supposed to give God the honor that he's due. But Israel here in this passage, did not do that. Instead, in verse 13, they cry out, what a weariness this is. They snort at God's actions. But you, church, will you? And finally, in verse 14, it says, cursed be the cheat who has, made a male, or who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. In this verse, I am reminded of the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. They had a land, and they promised that they would sell it and give everything to the church. 
but then they held, they held some of that money back. They didn't need to promise the church anything, but they made this promise, and then they broke it, and then they died. So take your promises seriously, brothers and sisters. God says, cursed be the cheat who vows it and does not deliver on the promises. And this is because God is a great king. He is a master, he is a father, and he is a king. And he rules over us and does so with perfect judgment. God's judgment deserves honor and respect. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Heavenly Master, Heavenly King, as we have read through this weighty portion of Scripture today, we see that there is so much that we are like from the Israels. We honor ourselves before we honor you. So may these words from Malachi teach us to honor you. We praise you for the perfect justice that you deliver and will deliver and know that all things will be made right when there will be no injustice on the day of judgment. We also praise you for the great undeserved kindness and mercy when you sent Jesus to take the punishment that we deserved. So we pray that we would have our hearts renewed and rejoice in this and ask that the Holy Spirit would continue to grow us in doing what is uh, right so that we would continue to seek after you and see the kindness of Christ. Renew our hearts to those who do not, renew the hearts of those who don't believe so that they too may know of your kindness and that they too may be saved. And we ask that in all these things, knowing that you care for us and continue to sustain us even in our times where we struggle with unbelief, that you would continue to be there and strengthen us and that you would continue to grow us every day of our life. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.